Welcome to New York Institute of Technology's podcast, The Scope. Produced by the College of Osteopathic Medicine, our episodes focus on the medical school experience and how it helps shape future physicians. Learn about exciting new health and wellness initiatives, cutting-edge medical research and technology, and how to effectively navigate medical school. We are excited to have you join us. Good afternoon, and welcome to a very special Dean's Circle edition of the Scope Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Wadsworth, Dean of the New York Institute of Technology, College of Osteopathic Medicine. It is my sincere honor and privilege to be on location at the beautiful NYIT D. Seversky Mansion with a very special guest. Please welcome New York Institute of Technology President, Dr. Hank Foley. Today, our conversation with Dr. Foley will include highlights and insights regarding his extraordinary career, as well as his experience and vision as president of NYIT. We will also explore Dr. Foley's personal research initiatives, his love for chemistry, <laughs> perspectives on medical education at NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine, future strategic plans for NYIT, and his insights on how students, faculty, and staff can best prepare for success during this dynamic time of technological advancement, innovation, and change. Thank you, Dr. Foley, for meeting with us today. I'm truly honored to be with you at this historic house located on the NYIT campus in Old Westbury, New York. Before we delve into our conversation, I'd like to provide our listeners with a few highlights of Dr. Foley's amazing career. Dr. Foley is the fourth president of New York Institute of Technology and is committed to providing outstanding outcomes for all of its students. One way he's successfully accomplishing this goal is by putting students at the core of a strategy that seeks to achieve excellence across all phases of the student's education. Prior to joining NYIT as president, Dr. Foley has an extensive array of experience in educational forums, holding senior leadership positions at numerous institutions, including the University of Missouri as interim chancellor and executive vice president for academic affairs, Penn State as department head of chemical engineering, associate vice president for research, dean of the College of Information Sciences and Technology, vice president for research, and dean of the graduate school. In addition, Dr. Foley has held faculty appointments in chemical engineering, chemistry at MU, Penn State, and University of Delaware. Dr. Foley has a strong passion for chemistry, earning his bachelor's, master's, and PhD degree in chemistry. He's also an accomplished researcher and has dedicated more than 30 years towards advancing the study of nanotechnology. Dr. Foley holds 16 patents, has written more than 150 articles, and a textbook. He has mentored nearly 50 graduate and undergraduate thesis students, as well as postdoctoral fellows. Those who have conducted research with him now hold faculty, senior research, and management positions at prestigious educational institutions. Among his many accomplishments and honors, Dr. Foley is a fellow of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, the Industrial and Engineering Chemistry Division of the American Chemical Society, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the National Academy of Inventors. He was also awarded an honorary degree of science by Providence College, and in 2017, earned the Distinguished Science Alumni Award from Purdue University. 
Dr. Foley is a trustee for Providence College, a member of the board of the Commission and of, on Independent Colleges and Universities in New York, and the Long Island Regional Advisory Council on Higher Education. He also serves on the board of directors of the Lincoln Center Business Improvement District and the Long Island Association. Dr. Foley has been married to Dr. Karen Foley for over 40 years. They have two daughters, Laura and Erica, and two grandchildren, Juliet and Graham. Wow, <laughs> Dr. Foley, I have to say I'm in awe of your amazing career, experiences, honors, and accomplishments. With so many extraordinary topics to discuss, I think a great place for us to start is at the beginning. Can you share a little bit about growing up and what that was like? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I was fortunate to have two wonderful parents. Uh, my father was a faculty member at what's now Bryant University, and uh, my mother was an artist. And so between the two of them, they made for um, a very interesting life for, for me. Uh, I was an only child until I was eight years old. And, uh, and so there were really two families in a sense, you know, it was me and then it was my sister because the age gap between us. I grew up in Providence and um, it was a wonderful life, it really was. It was a wonderful time to be a child and uh, they were older parents uh, for their era and so they were somewhat indulgent, I think, <laughs> and I, I had the benefit of that. That's great, that's yeah. great. Um, so what are, do you have a, a fond memory or fondest memories when you were young? Yeah, it, it's funny you should say that I do. One of my fondest memories is that uh, I used to walk to school and home again, uh, first through fourth grade. And uh, I remember having my report card and having done well and running home <laughs> to, to show my report card. Isn't that a funny thing to remember? But I remember being so happy for them that I had done well. <laughs> that uh, I wanted to show them. But what a different era, right? Mm -hmm. That yeah. uh, if I showed you the route I walked, you would never let a child walk that route now, you know, alone. And I did it alone. No one thought anything about it. So it was sort of uh, a very different era. Mm -hmm. Different yeah. different times yeah. as well. Um, was there anyone in your life or a specific experience that influenced your career path? Well, you know, I think my father, first and foremost, um, he seemed to know everything about everything. Mm -hmm. He was uh, uh, just an amazingly knowledgeable guy, uh, not an advanced degree holder, interestingly enough, but just exceptionally well-read and, and a thoughtful person. So, of course, I think he had a huge impact on me. And, um, in fact, it was always a letdown to meet teachers and even college professors because I had, them, I had to compare them to my father, and they didn't compare that well, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I think, I think that was probably the, the primary influence. And then, you know, uh, you say I had a love for chemistry. I didn't actually. Oh. <laughs> I actually loved math and physics. Uh, chemistry was a, a distant third, and biology was way at the bottom. <laughs> I just didn't like the idea of cutting up frogs and, and things of that sort. Uh, but I got to about uh, my sophomore year in college, and I looked around, and I realized my family's not wealthy. We don't own a business. Um, I better find something practical. And so, you know, I was thinking about math. I was thinking about physics. I'd been a bio major because my father wanted me to be a doctor. No offense, I didn't want to be a doctor. And um, so I decided I'll, I'll study chemistry. 
Uh, I'll move to chemistry. It's the closest thing to physics. But at the same time, I get a job with it when I graduate. And that's as simple as my thinking was as a 19-year-old. Uh, yeah. well, well, it makes sense, right? Yeah, and yeah, sounds yeah. like with your parents, practicality was important. It, you know, <laughs> it was and it wasn't. It was probably me more than them. Mm. You know, they let me do my own thing, as they would have said. You know, whatever you do, it's fine. Uh, they didn't push at all. Uh, but... Um, I felt the pressure suddenly at that point. And then, of course, I learned I had a wonderful mentor uh, an under, as an undergrad who was a chemist who um, you know, sort of took me under his wing. And uh, it was through him that I started to do research. Mm -hmm. And then I learned that I could go to graduate school. And, uh, and then I learned that I wouldn't have to pay for graduate school. <laughs> graduate school would pay for me to go. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things fell into place in another year or two after that. Yeah. What, what a great story. And um, having a mentor yeah. sometimes is very organic. Right? You don't, <laughs> don't necessarily expect it. But it sounds like he had a great influence yeah. on you and your career. He did. His name was Ed Boyko. And he had gone to Providence College as an undergrad and then did his PhD at Rutgers and then went off to, um, to work at General Electric in their research laboratories in Schenectady. And so he'd done that for a number of years, and then he quit and came back to teaching. Mm. And he was a marvelous teacher, and he knew a lot of math, and so I really resonated with him and uh, hit it off. And he was the one who said to me, now, you know, don't shy away from taking a few courses in chemical engineering. And I didn't think much of that at the time because I didn't really know what chemical engineering was, but I tucked it away as a fact in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And actually, a few years later, after uh, completing my PhD, I decided to do a postdoc in chemical engineering, and that changed the rest of my career. Wow. Yeah. Well, before we leave that, I mean, I think mm -hmm. that yeah. story really highlights one of the beauties of higher education. The, the opportunity to be influenced mm -hmm. and to influence others yes. quite dramatically, yes. and sometimes without yeah. even knowing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree. So can you, speaking of your advanced work, can you tell me a little bit about your work in nanotechnology? Well, you know, it wasn't always called nanotechnology, but <laughs> if I wanted to continue to be funded, I had to start <laughs> to use the nano prefix. So. Sometime in the, uh, I would say, mid to late 1990s, uh, <clears throat> the National Science Foundation started to really push along uh, the lines of nanoscale science and engineering. And I was perfectly positioned to do that. I'd been working in an area um, that was a blend of physical chemistry and chemical engineering catalysis. And then I had overlaid separations on that, molecular level separations, separations based on size and shape of molecules. Well, to do that, you have to have porous media that have uh, pores that are similar in size to the kinds of molecules that you're trying to shape, uh, shape selectively uh, separate, I should say. And so I started to become really interested in things called molecular sieves and tying that together with catalysis uh, was intriguing because you could now suddenly start to overcome, not to get too deep, but overcome some thermodynamic barriers uh, to chemical reactions by using shape-selective effects to take one of the products away from the reaction mixture continuously. 
So doing separation and reaction at the same time. And by doing so, you could shift the equilibrium to the right-hand side towards product. That all was pretty interesting. And that led into a lot of different directions. And we became uh, experts at working with what's now called nanoporous carbons and carbon materials and making membranes from them, membrane units, and then modeling these things and so forth, and modeling the materials themselves. It was just fascinating. I hated to give it up, to be honest with you. So I kept doing it till 2013, which was probably longer than I realistically should have been doing deep research. But I, uh, I'd do it again right now if I could. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah it sounds very it. engaging. And, yeah. Yeah. and that's the beauty of science. There's yeah. always more questions. Always more questions, always more ideas. Mm -hmm. I still you know, sit around at night or in the morning and think of things that, yeah, I wish I just could set up this experiment right now because it would be fascinating to see. We should have done this, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. I wish I had done it. You know, that sort of thing still occurs to me. But of course I can't, so. <laughs> You're a busy person. <laughs> um, so it's sort of moving on from that, after graduating and getting your um, PhD, what was your early career like? And, and um, how yeah. did those lead you to here? Yeah, I don't think I could ever walk the same path that I walked the first time. I don't think anyone else could walk it either. It's just, it was a combination of good fortune, luck, and, and hard work and, and success, but uh, in, some, in some of my research. So um, when I decided to go to a chemical engineering postdoc, my PhD advisor was not happy about it. Uh, he had me lined up to work for his PhD advisor at Caltech or his good friend at MIT as a postdoc. And so he was a bit crestfallen, but that didn't bother me. I, I thought, now this is what I want to do because I know the direction I want to go in. Uh, so I spent a year doing a postdoc at the University of Delaware in chemical engineering in a center which was unlike any other center in the United States and, and really in, in Europe as well. And it was an interdisciplinary center, one of the first of its kind in the country, brought together, brought together chemists, physicists, chemical engineers, and material scientists to study these particular problems that uh, we were interested in, and, uh, and also industry. So we had a tremendous amount of industrial funding and industrial interest, and I just loved it, absolutely loved it. I thought it was really a, a terrific place. Fell in love with Delaware. Ironically, Karen's family was from Wilmington, Delaware. Her father had emigrated from Holland uh, to come here to work for DuPont in the 1950s. And so she went back and worked for DuPont, and I went to the University of Delaware, spent a year, and then we went off and uh, went to a company called American Cyanamid in Stamford, Connecticut. We both worked there for three years, almost four years. And uh, then I was fortunate enough to be offered a faculty position in chemical engineering uh, at the University of Delaware, which was, you know, a pretty big deal at the time. It was a top 10 department. I wasn't a chemical engineer. So I went there thinking that, oh, I would teach fringe courses and things on the side that, you know, were in my area. And they said, no, you're going to teach chemical engineering. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I didn't bother to tell them I'd never had a course in it, but, uh, but, uh, but I did learn it on the fly pretty quickly as much as I could. And that led to the textbook that I ended up writing. Okay. Yeah. Great. And so, um, and ultimately, we were fortunate enough for you to come to NYIT. Uh, this was uh, 
just a, a, a gift from the gods for me. I, uh, I had been at Missouri for four years, uh, almost four years, and I, I loved it, but I also thought that I wanted to get back to the East Coast for a lot of reasons, sort of towards the end of my career. My mother had passed away while I was at Missouri. I always felt bad about it that I wasn't here for her. And my father was in his late 90s, and I didn't want it to all fall on my sister's shoulders. And so when this job popped up, it was miraculous. I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, my sister has lived in Manhasset for 25 years. Yeah. And um, so I remember contacting the, um, the, the headhunter, if I could use that term, and uh, telling him I was interested. And then one of the board members and I met, and the rest is history. <laughs> it's been six years now, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's just been wonderful. Living here has been wonderful. Yeah. What does your average day look like as president? Well, you know, it's probably not too different than yours, <laughs> you know, except that uh, what do I have 12 vice presidents, I think. And so, you know, you have to, I meet with all of them one on one, I meet with them throughout the weeks, uh, I meet with them as a team. Right? We share as much information as possible and try to push information out and across all the departments and break down the barriers between them. Uh, I don't like managing people in silos. I'd like to get a lot of crosstalk and, and teamwork going. And that worked as, uh, frankly, as a research advisor. Right? I did more of that than um, was typical in getting my students to work together and so forth and helping each other rather than competing with each other, if you know what I mean. So a typical day is, is really involved in meeting people on the inside, meeting people on the outside, uh, sometimes going to events in the evening uh, and so forth. And you know, so it's full, there, mm -hmm. the, the, there's a lot to do. And even when there isn't something on the schedule, um, there's still a lot to do, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and, uh, and to learn, right? And constantly learning and trying to bring what I'm learning to bear on what we're trying to do here. And so uh, right now, you know, we've got big goals for the school mm -hmm. uh, and we're trying to move it in a new direction of becoming a research active institution. You're very involved with me on this, right? You yes. know how hard we're working on that. We're also trying to really um, be successful at raising uh, more dollars philanthropically, right? That's something that's traditionally not been a part of uh, NYIT's uh, success, but we think it needs to be for the future. So those are the things that I really spend most of my time thinking about and focusing on. We have a terrific team of people with wonderful faculty. I think the students are seeing that and feeling that. And uh, I think it's important for me to continue to espouse that to everyone, that, that that student experience is crucial, whether it's a graduate student, a student in the medical school, or a freshman in calculus. Um, they all need to have that feeling that we care about them, and we do, and that uh, because of our caring, they can be successful. I love the diversity of our school. Mm -hmm. I love the kinds of students we get uh, because they are just so sincere, so driven, and, um, and ultimately uh, uh, want to do very, very well. And I think that that makes for a great atmosphere. Mm -hmm. yeah, we just want to make it better. Yep, I agree wholeheartedly. Well, your daughter is here. Yes, yes, she's, <laughs> she's an alumni now. No, she's an alumni. Yeah, That's which, right. you know, yeah. I'm not hardly old, en old enough for such a thing, but <laughs> she was very happy, and, and I was happy for her. 
Um, so what are some of your favorite parts? I think you sort of mentioned it, of being president. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I love working with uh, the vice presidents. I like, you know, working closely with them and helping them to succeed in that which they want to do that fits together with what we're trying to do overall. And in a sense, that's not that different than what I did with grad students, to be honest. <laughs> Don't tell people, but you know, you've got people who are extraordinarily talented, right? And who are, are highly driven and know what they want to do. Well, mostly it's about getting out of their way, first and foremost, and then secondly, facilitating uh, as much as possible from my office that which they want to do. And then from time to time, refereeing also <laughs> between people. Right? Yep. 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 I think the team analogy is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, it's like being a coach, or, mm -hmm. or more than it is like being a boss. It's the boss paradigm doesn't work too well. Yeah. So, um, so on a little bit of a more serious note. Yeah. Uh, having experienced the dramatic, I would say, you know, almost overnight necessary for immediate shifts in the educational process during the yes. pandemic. Yeah. Um, can you offer any insights on how you maneuvered NYT through these challenging times? Uh, first, I won't take a lot of credit for it because I think it came from the bottom up, if I could use that term. I think the faculty just quickly turned on a dime. It was astonishing to see it happen. And it just proves to me how talented they are uh, that they were able to do this and do it so quickly. That said, there were other aspects of it where, you know, I think that's where the coaching came back in. People were down, mm -hmm. you know? And so picking people up at times and getting them going again was a, a big part of it and trying to keep them moving. And then, uh, you know, it was a scary time financially also, mm -hmm. as it was for almost every school. Um, and so we had to make some very difficult and hard decisions and no one likes to make those, uh, but you have to And in my job. And because we did that then, uh, we're in a much better position now. And I see other schools around the region that didn't make those decisions. Well, all they did was delay it. Mm -hmm. Now they're in a position where they absolutely positively have to because the, uh, the funds that came from the government, the federal government are gone, right? So the HERF money is gone and uh, we kept saying it's gonna be gone, mm -hmm. you know, so we've got to prepare. So we've done that. Um, I think those are the things that I remember I was worried very much about the students, their experience. Uh, we learned some things. Some students actually liked being online better than being in the classroom, particularly students who are, you know, for lack of a better term, more shy. Mm -hmm. uh, they told us they were less, uh, less apt to ask a question in a typical classroom format than they would be in the Zoom format, which I would never have guessed. So we learned some things and, and learned that um, we can pivot when we have to and be quite flexible. Um, but we learned, I think, how to do things online better than we had done before. Uh, I think we still have quite a few courses that are hybrid courses. That's interesting. Um, so, you know, it was a difficult time. It, those were, I like to call them dog years. You know, it seemed <laughs> like they really went, it, you know, the last three years, it's hard to, usually there's a rhythm to the year. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of know when things happened. And this was more like a continuum. Yeah, and, I, and we're still feeling it, I think, to some extent. We say we aren't. We're not wearing masks and so <laughs> forth, but, but I think we're still feeling the residual effects to some extent. And 
we will for a while, particularly for incoming new students who went through this in high school or went through this in junior high school, mm -hmm. right? There, there are some residual effects on them, I think, that we have to watch for. I agree. I think yeah. we'll continue to see those effects. And um, is there any, anything, anything that you learned or institutionally we learned that, that is going to help us make better decisions moving forward? Well, I think what we've been on a pathway to do uh, was to really uh, build a model for decision making that was financially sound for NYIT in everything. And we had been on a path to do that. But what the pandemic did was to compress that time frame. So now we really have, we do Monte Carlo simulations of our budget. I don't know any other school in the country that's doing it. Mm. Um, things of that sort, our budget priorities, how we do our budget meetings. Um, our spring is intense, right? I was really tired by, by May <laughs> and tired of Zoom meetings talking about budgets, to be honest with you, we all work, but absolutely essential because we work on such thin margins, mm -hmm. right, that you have to get it, you have to get it right. And at the same time, we provide a tremendous amount of aid to our students. 50%, almost 50% are Pell eligible. So, you know, between the two, that makes for um, challenging financial management. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, a little bit more reflection and then thinking forward. The last two, days, two decades have been a time of rapid advancements in technology and medical care. Yes. Um, in your opinion, how has this impacted the Student Educational Forum at large and at NYIT? And, and what are some of the positive results? Well, um, you know, if we look at the impact of technology on all of our lives, it's startling. And I think you're almost old enough to remember before we had all this technology, but I certainly am. I'm not sure about you. And, and to see students now using all of this technology adeptly, right, as undergraduates even, is, is pretty amazing. And we take it for granted. And we take it for granted because it's so easy to use and they use it well. So everything from word processing to you know, presentations to modeling to Excel, all of these things we take for granted now and they weren't there once. So it's very much changed, I think, the kinds of things we teach and how we teach. And it's gonna happen again now. Hmm. So I've been, you know, everyone knows I'm a, I love Mathematica. Well, Mathematica has gotten to the point now, I started using it when it first came out in 1988 because I was interested in the fact that it could do symbolic computation as well as numerical computation. But it could do so much more than that now, and it's a language. And even you know, five years ago, it was almost a mathematical assistant. Now it could literally be a mathematical assistant because they've put chat GPT on top of it. So you can really type your questions in or suggestions or things you wanted to do, uh, type it in in natural language, and it converts that natural language into Mathematica code, and then you execute it, right? It's pretty amazing. So what does that change? Well, when I was still teaching, although I was using Mathematica, I was still showing students how to solve problems, and a lot of it was about the math, the tricks you needed to know to do the math, and if you didn't know the trick, you know, to differentiate under the integral or, you know, partial fractions. I'm getting too deep, sorry. But, <laughs> but these things, you know, um, then they couldn't solve the problem. 
So we spent a lot of class time in subjects that were not math on math. Mm. That's changing. That has to change. And how we'll cope with that now that AI is coming in is, is even more interesting to think about. I'm not frightened by it the way some people are. I think there's a lot of uh, hype out there and people like to hype frightening scenarios. But I do think that it will require serious rethinking of pedagogy, right, in a lot of different subjects. And it takes the emphasis off the doing of the math and puts the emphasis, for example, in engineering on the conceptualization, uh, the analysis of the problem at hand, and thinking through what the, uh, the solution will look like. I think it's going to have an impact in engineering. It's going to have impact in the sciences. Uh, we're already seeing people synthesizing new proteins that were uh, put together by AI, right? So they're new proteins that have never been seen before. I think in uh, medicine, it's going to be profound. And all of us will have to adjust to it. I don't think doctors, engineers are going to go away, but they're going to be different. I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. What, what it's going to look like, I don't know, but um, I'd like to think it's going to only augment our abilities, not yeah. hinder what we can do. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm optimistic about it, actually. Yeah. yeah. So in your opinion, what are some of the personal qualities that you feel are essential for a student to develop into an effective, successful, compassionate business person, medical provider, or educational leader today? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So I think uh, it's an ancient thing to say, but know thyself, <laughs> I think, is at the top of the list. And knowing thyself is uh, being honest about one's strengths and weaknesses, and being able to acknowledge weaknesses, and knowing where they are, and susceptibilities as well as strengths. We're all pretty good at knowing what our strengths are. We're a little reluctant to uh, own up to our weaknesses. And, and so I think that's always at the top of the list and probably has been since the Greeks. You know, I don't know who said it, Aristotle or Plato or something. Um, one of those, right. but <laughs> I don't remember which one today. And, and I think that, that that leads then to you know, understanding how you fit in with other people and how you fit in on a team. And we talk a lot about leadership, but we don't talk enough about followership. And I used to say this a lot to people that, you know, it, it's important to know how to be a part of a team, even when you're not the leader of the team, right? And to learn how to do that and do it well and to anticipate what the leader's issues are gonna be and, and to, to help that person succeed at what they're doing. And then the whole thing starts to work very, very well. So teamwork, I think, is also, uh, it's, it's uh, trite to say teamwork. There's nothing trite about actually successful teamwork. It's actually quite hard to do and, and, and tricky, and it takes real time and effort. So I think for young people, and what I love about our young people is I think they're different than students from other schools, um, particularly elite schools. They get a job, and two weeks on the job, they're telling their boss everything that's wrong with the company and how to fix it. You know? and, uh, and I know this because it's actually true. It sounds absurd, but the arrogance is, is high. And so being that arrogant is uh, not a positive thing. And I think our students come out much less arrogant and much better able to fit into teams and fit into a place and then work their way up and begin to shine and show how well they do. So I think having some self-knowledge, 
being able to work on a team, and then having humility uh, are three really important things uh, that everybody needs. What's absolutely wonderful about what you said is that it's not technology-based. No, no. These are things that we all can yeah. control and influence, and um, that's, uh, well, that's you know, great. I think we're going to the era where technology is going to be so powerful it'll be innocuous, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, just look at this thing that we carry around in our pocket, wherever it is. Uh, it's, it's astonishing, right? It's absolutely astonishing. But it's still very much a thing, and it's very present, and you have to know how to use it and so forth. But we're going to the era now where they're going to be able to interact with the technology through natural language and, and things of that sort. So the technology will be there to assist you, to augment you. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that means the human side of what you do uh, becomes even more important. Right? Again, it's like the math analogy. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do the math. Okay, well, what is this now? What am I doing? Well, you're solving the problem. The problem isn't the math. It's, you know, it's some pollution. It's climate change. It's something else. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Well, certainly it resonates with my own bias and yeah. that the interpersonal connection and yeah. the communication will always be key. Yeah. I think absolutely crucial, especially in medicine. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to change gears a little bit yeah. um, and ask a little bit about just some of your personal interests. So is there anything specific <laughs> that gives you um, a good feeling of inner accomplishment or joy? Well, since I can't do research much anymore, I spend a lot of time uh, playing with math because I could do that, you know, in five minute stints and so forth. And, uh, I didn't like math that much when I was a kid, and I absolutely love it now, which is bizarre. I mean, it's, it's sort of like Benjamin Button. It's backwards. Um, and I think that's sort of telling, because right now we have fewer and fewer people who were born in the United States, raised in the United States, who want to be in science and engineering. So thankfully, we've got a lot of lots of people who still want to immigrate here. And, and we'll uh, go through the rigors of that kind of an education. So I think a lot about that too, right? And I think about, you know, how do we fix all this, right? How do we get things to be better? I don't have a solution, but, but I think that's part of what makes it exciting to be an educator. If you ask me, do I have hobbies? I don't have hobbies. This is a real problem. I wish I had a hobby. <laughs> I don't have any hobbies because I never had time for hobbies, right? When, when you're running a research group and writing proposals and papers and preparing lectures at the last minute to give tomorrow morning, there's, there isn't a lot of time to go golfing, fishing, and that sort of thing. Um, so maybe over time I'll develop those, but I think it'll always be somewhere along the lines of math and modeling. And just enjoy it, you know, oh, just enjoy it. That's so it's important. fun. And I love to read. Mm -hmm. I love to read and listen to music. You know, that's great. So. Um, so speaking of a little bit, not necessarily yeah. hobbies, but how do you incorporate personal wellness? This is something that's particularly not important well. to me. <laughs> not well. <laughs> not well. Uh, I, it's something I'm working on. It's uh, something I started again in May and uh, I've been working on, but then the injuries pile up and you, you, the aches and the pains come. And so you, you fall off again. And I'm telling myself this week, it's time to get out there again and <laughs> keep going. But uh, no, that's not a strength of mine. I will admit it. And uh, it's one of my weaknesses that I don't do enough. 
I used to when I was younger. I mm -hmm. did a lot. Uh, but the last 10 years, it's, it's been hard to fit it all in and make it work. Oh, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and then lastly, um, well, I have two more questions, actually. Yeah. So do you have um, a bucket list? Things you want to <laughs> do? I mean, we, I know we talked about a few. and uh... It's funny. Karen and I have talked about this recently, and we don't really have one anymore. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of the things that we wanted to do. Uh, on the other hand, uh, she has a passion for Africa, and so we've been on a couple of trips to South Africa and, you know, safari-type trips, and we'll do another one of those, and she, she loves that. And if she loves it, then I love it. You know, it's just that kind of thing. We met at Purdue, by the way, okay. as graduate students. So uh, if you notice, I've hopped around a lot in jobs. I can't keep a job, but I've managed to keep a, <laughs> a spouse. <laughs> That's really important. <laughs> A Table Mountain in South Africa is pretty incredible. It's fabulous. Yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Have you been in the clouds? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's great. Yeah. The it's last really time good. we were there, in fact. Yeah. That's great. And it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so lastly, yeah. where, do, where would you like to see NYT in the next five to ten years? Yeah. Great question. So uh, having been here now six years, I'm really, really optimistic and positive about the future. I think the combination that we have as a polytechnic plus plus as I keep calling it with the medical school the health professions tied together with the sciences and engineering architecture really put us in, in management I have to mention them all but uh, it really puts us in a position where we've got all the pieces here under one roof that we could do things that other schools can't do what I have found interesting, and we have not done this, it's not been a strategy, is the fact that 70% of the students last May who graduated from MIT were post-baccalaureate students, wow. right? The year before it was 60%. Is it going to be 80% next year? I don't know yet, and I'll try to predict it. But maybe that's, that's something that is inexorable. Maybe we really are heading towards being what we are, which is now primarily a, a graduate level education institution. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on. It hasn't been a strategy. It's not something that I said, that's our goal. Mm. It's happened. And it's happened because of how the marketplace looks at us, how students look at us, and what we offer back to them. So it's very natural. Um, I think it's crucial that we become a school that doesn't just arbitrage and transfer information and knowledge. I think it's really important that we get in the game and become a school that's also creating new knowledge. I think that's essential. Now, I'm biased. I'm a researcher, right? I'm inclined to think that way. Uh, I was a research vice president. Um, I really believe in research and, and what it does uh, for the human condition. But I also think that it's going to be increasingly difficult for schools that are primarily undergraduate institutions to survive. I just don't see many of them surviving over the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, I think they'll fall off, fall off, there'll be mergers and things of that sort and more and more going out of business slowly, it won't be fast. Mm. Uh, there'll always be some, there'll always be a school like um, Harvey Mudd in California which is primarily undergraduate engineering school, or Rose Holman, or, or on the liberal arts side of Williams College. They aren't going to go away, or Bates, or Bowdoin, 
those things. But the rest of the schools that are in that category are going to struggle, especially if they don't have large endowments to support uh, their budgets. So that said, I think it's really important for NYIT to move in this direction, which we're already going in, mm-hmm. right, and to amplify it, embellish it, and put ourselves where we need to be uh, for a longer-term future beyond five years. Yeah. Great. And look where we are. I mean, this is a beautiful place to do research. It's not hard to attract people here, mm-hmm. right, to come here and become you know, researchers and faculty members and so forth. They, I think we're going to see an uptick as people get to know us and as people come here, others will want to come here as well. And so I think 10 years from now, uh, we could be a very, very high activity, very high research activity school, I think. And that would be wonderful. Long Island needs that. Long Island needs its MIT, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds fantastic. I, I think it will be. I think it will be. And I want to echo the beauty. It's absolutely beautiful here. And then having the campus so close to New York City and having our site in New York City just dovetails beautifully with this. Mm -hmm. And of course, I have to say, having Vancouver and having Jonesboro, you know, Vancouver for the effect that we're having there and in helping students really become permanent residents of Canada. Uh, but then also the work that your college is doing in the Mississippi Delta is amazing, absolutely amazing. And now to see fa- um, doctors coming out and practicing, who came out of our school practicing in that part of the country is exactly what you wanted to do and it's happening. I think that story will grow and grow more. In fact, I keep saying I'd like to get in front of the Chronicle of Higher Education and talk about just that story because it's so unique. I don't know another one like it in higher education. Yeah, it is great. And, it, it, and you had mentioned earlier in yeah. the conversation about intentionality. Yeah. And it's really wonderful to see that come to fruition. It, it is. And I think it's going to bode well, very well, for New York Tech and its reputation long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it will, you know, it's still so young, most people have never heard of it. But, um, <laughs> it will start to grow in reputation and impact. I agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and experiences. It truly has been a privilege to um, hear your stories and hear about how you see the future. uh, Thank you for sharing. And always, I wish you and your family well. And I would like to thank you personally for the strong leadership you provide for New York Institute of Technology. You're very kind. Thank you. This was a pleasure.